This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today we talk to Howard Ramos from Dalhousie University about the death of political parties. Our discussion was recorded on September 12th, 2019. A quick note, uh, over the course of the discussion, we make several references to the uh, GST, the value-added tax that was uh, um, established during the period in question. Uh, the GSD stands for the Goods and Services Tax. Uh, we mangled it a bit. The Goods and Services Tax. Now let's go to the episode. Last week, Michelle Goldberg wrote a piece in the opinion section of the New York Times titled, Dare We Dream of the End of the GOP? And in it, she describes a prediction from political pollster Stanley Greenberg whose new book, R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans, predicts a blue tidal wave in 2020. And Goldberg writes, it sounds almost messianic, the Republican Party not just defeated, but destroyed. And my first impression with this is like, it's a fantasy. Uh, These pieces that imagine the permanent death of political movements that we don't like, It's quite clear from this piece that Michelle Goldberg doesn't like the Republicans. And, you know, I think there's some type of idea that Trump is so bad or demographic changes are so big that there'll be like a permanent end to the conservatism that prevents the types of policies that Goldberg and those who agree with her want. And this impression is rooted in my own experience in 1990s Canadian politics when Canada's leading conservative party, the Progressive Conservatives, was literally destroyed. It went from controlling the Canadian government to losing its official status as a party in one election. And it withered on the vine a few years and got swallowed up by a new form of conservatism. It wasn't really, it was the death of the National Progressive Conservative Party, but maybe not the death of conservatism. And, uh, you know, my, my impressions of this were naive, And I thought, who better to explain this than Howard Ramos of Dalhousie University. Howard is a leading Canadian political sociologist. He's former president of the Canadian Sociological Association and a great mind to tap into this stuff. So thank you very much for joining us, Howard. Oh, my pleasure. That's kind of you to say. Oh, it's the truth. Okay, so wait, let's start. Let's do this like as a narrative story and start with the Progressive Conservative Party itself, not specifically under Brian Mulroney, the prime minister who oversaw its death, but in general. What were the conservatives about? How, you know, what was their, what were their defining characteristics in your mind? Well, after World War II and uh, the rise of the welfare state in Canada, conservatives realized that their only viable route to uh, gaining any electoral traction was to be progressive conservatives. And it's a, a tradition that uh, is largely tied to my region, Atlantic Canada, and people often call these folks Red Tories. Mm. And the recognition was that uh, Canadians are very centrist. So if you're going to be uh, a winning party uh, to outflank uh, the Liberals, which is the dominant party, uh, the Liberals are kind of equivalent to, uh, you know, if you look at Japan, uh, the Liberal Democrats, or you look at uh, Mexico, uh, the PRI, uh, you know, it's it's the dominant party that that tends to to win a lot of elections, and it does so by kind of skirting the center. So the progressive conservatives were created in this way to try and play in that middle space. Now let's turn to Brian Mulroney specifically. Mulroney was prime minister from 1984 to 1993. To my mind, he was a very good prime minister, but ultimately he oversaw the destruction of his party. 
What did he do that got people so angry? Well, there were a number of things that he played with. So he was very much a center uh, politician. If you looked at him in today's politics, he wouldn't look like a conservative, yeah. uh, at least in how the conservatives have been rebuilt in Canada. Yeah. Uh, he was invited to host, uh, well, he was invited to a debate hosted by uh, the National Action uh, Committee uh, on the status of women. So the National Women's Organization hosted a debate with him. He was pro uh, women's rights. Uh, he was open to free trade. He wasn't a nativist. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of did him in, though, was he was before his time. And so he offended uh, mainstream Canadians uh, in probably two ways. Uh, the first was uh, an economic conservatism uh, and openness to free trade. Yeah. Uh, the second issue was at that time, uh, Canada had run a, a almost two decades of deficits and, and the economy was largely defined by debt. And uh, he was going to fix this by introducing uh, a general service uh, tax uh, that was not popular at all. Yeah. Uh, and then there's an interesting story to that, too. Uh, and the other thing that kind of uh, did him in was uh, he was holding power at a time that Canada was revisiting its constitution in this kind of abeyance period. Uh, from 82 to 87, there was a period where the details of our constitution, which was patriated in 1982, were going to get hammered out. And his lofty goal was to try and bring Quebec into the constitution that didn't sign the constitution. And in doing so, recognize Quebec's distinct society as a nation. Yeah. And English Canadians were not ready for that. Yeah. Again, before his time. Today, I don't think most people would react so negatively. So he had built up this kind of, he was too progressive as a conservative, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe uh, too in the center and, and, and ahead of his time. So uh, when the election happened, it happened shortly after um, the Meech Lake Accord fell. Mm -hmm. uh, it also happened after a second accord, the Charlottetown Accord fell, which were both accords to try and bring Quebec into the constitution. And he lost his base of support in Quebec, uh, which were largely uh, a number of conservative MPs that jumped ship and formed the Bloc Québécois, which is a Quebec uh, separatist party in the federal um, uh, parliament. Or, and uh, this was the undoing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and as you were saying, uh, when the election happened in 1993, they went from having a majority down to just a number, a few numbers of seats. Two. Under the... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, under uh, the leadership of Kim Campbell, who was really thrown in, uh, as, as many women are in politics, yeah. into a dire situation. There's some excellent work by a political scientist named Sylvia Bishevkin, yeah. who analyzes women in politics and women leaders in, in Canada. And almost every time the narrative is the same, they get put into the position of leadership right at the time that the party looks like it's going to lose. Yeah. Uh, and they get help, you know, they get a bad de a deck of cards. Uh, and one could argue that that's what happened also with Hillary Clinton in, in the U S election in the last election, uh, that, uh, it was clear that the economy was, wasn't, uh, doing well. She had a bad deck of cards, uh, and, and got put into this, uh, crazy election that happened in uh, 2016. Yeah, uh, well, so wait, there's a lot to, uh, I, I just want to sort of map it out there. So Mulroney, so the, the big knocks on Mulroney were one, Canada faced a debt crisis and he raised taxes. He imposed a sales tax, like a national sales tax of about seven. Well, he didn't, he didn't bring it in. He proposed it. Oh, okay. So I, I, ironically, the, the liberals who campaigned against him under Jean Chrétien, so they were never going to have this GST, the sales tax. I remember tax. that, yeah. And, and um, 
you know, so it was like, no, we're not going to do this. And, and uh, you know, and then the very next thing they did was they brought it in. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was a, it was an excellent move. And then the second thing he did, he so he raised taxes in a way to deal with the debt problem. And he proposed like sort of like a strongly multicultural sort of constitutional accord, really. It was one that uh, recognized Canada as a multicultural society rather than an English dominant one. And English Canada reacted very poorly to that. Oh, oh very much so. And, yeah. and he also had the baggage of being in power for a number of years. And, and, yeah. and certainly as, as you get into your second and third term people, you end up campaigning against yourself as much as you campaign against others. Uh, totally. uh, so what's interesting about him is he was the leader of the conser progressive conservative party, but he wasn't conservative enough in terms of traditional values. Right. And he was maybe too conservative in terms of economic values. He was open to world trade and, and globalization at a time that Canadians weren't ready for that. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, a lot of American listeners would find like a tax raising multiculturalist to it's a, it's hard to imagine that that would be the conservative candidate, but he was like that, and uh, just a string of events caused him to be very unpopular. And then you mentioned Kim Campbell, so they appointed Mulroney resigned quickly, and they quickly appointed Canada's first female prime minister. I guess as the party had its head on the chopping block. They decided they'd stick her in there. Uh, if, if you ever hear a Canadian talk about how we've had a Canadian prime minister, I, I think that's worthy of an eye roll. Uh, yeah, she, she she was far, she served as Canada's, uh, 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 in the consulate in LA for a longer period than she was uh, prime minister. <laughs> so she was barely a prime minister, but at least we had a, a woman prime minister for a little while. Yeah, got like, we can check that box sort of with a big asterisk. And then they got destroyed. What happened to... So from the view of the earlier article that I uh, mentioned, you might imagine, oh, well, that's the death of conservatism, uh, the, maybe the permanent death of the hated progressive conservative party at the time. Uh, but it wasn't really the death of conservatism writ large, was it? Well, it was the death of progressive conservatism. Yeah. And what it did was it spawned... Uh, you know, a, a decade and a half of uh, a rebranding of conservatism. Mm -hmm. So what it did was it created uh, the Reform Party, which was a further right of center conservative, largely based in uh, the Western provinces. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it created regionalism. Yeah. And uh, basically, very much like what's going on in the US right now, it, 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 it turned uh, conservatism to focusing on a base rather than focusing on the broad network. Mm -hmm. And a number of years, most of the rest of the 1990s and early 2000s was a struggle to try and unite the conservatives, to get the progressive conservative party to align with the reform party. There was a brief party called the Canadian Alliance, uh, which uh, then got replaced by the conservatives. So it was, uh, you know, a decade, decade and a half of, of trying to figure out what is the new coalition of conservatives. And what it was, was basically... Uh, focusing on a social conservative and economic conservative coalition. Uh, and it got rid of the progressive. It's You know, so I was actually an intern in the progressive conservative party leader's office then under Joe Clark. Uh, and I remember, first of all, a uh, funny side note, there were only two people who we had to wear a suit. Well, we had to wear a suit to the office when two people came. One was Joe Clark, the former prime minister. And the other was Conrad Black. Uh, <laughs> that's, I think he was bankrolling 
the party when it was shattered like that. He was he, he was a fixture. I remember that. I mean, I was I was young. I was a university student, so I wasn't privy to a lot of stuff. I just you know did research, but I remember that and found that quite funny. And I remember our impression was that it was an American style conservatism and that it was religious and nativist and uh, you know sort of hard bargaining, not seeking a consensus. And you're saying it was like a base politics, a lot like the Trump Trump style of politics. Very much so. But what was interesting about this is it, it did solidify a base. Mm -hmm. it, it galvanized Western Canada and, and a narrative of Western alienation and the need to invest yeah. in, in the Alberta oil economy. Yeah. Uh, but that alone wasn't able to rebuild the Conservative Party. So the, the party really got rebuilt in, in the 2000s under Stephen Harper, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister. Uh, and it was rebuilt by, again, trying to move to the centre. Right. But it was centre-right rather than centre-left. And it was a focus on on an economic conservatism. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it catered to the religious right, but uh, you know tried not to make too too big a deal of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it catered to immigrants uh, who are largely come to Canada through economic pathways and and often uh, are, are quite affluent because uh, uh, we have a very controlled uh, immigration system. It's actually very hard to immigrate to Canada. Yeah, it's it's a, a lot like the immigration system, I guess, that Trump aspires to implement to some degree. Very much so. Yeah. Very, very much so. And and as uh, an objective Canadian, looking at some of the claims of Trump and before him, Obama, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people often uh, highlight that Trump, uh, you know, wants to build a wall and he wants to limit immigration. The only thing that is essentially different between him and Obama was Obama wasn't going to build a wall. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they really are trying to get, a, you know, the U.S. is trying to get a controlled immigration system, uh, which Australia has, which Canada has. And and so Canadians often get smug and, and talk about how, how great we are about our immigration. But it's, you know, we have, you know, only one land border with, with the U.S. And, and three oceans. So yeah. it, it, we're not getting mass migration of undocumented people. And when we have, uh, our reaction hasn't been that different uh, to what you see in, in, in uh, American reaction. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing that the rebranding of conservatism was this kind of more center pack uh, appeal to immigrants, new immigrants, um, appeal to globalization and, and, and the economic, uh, cater to the religious right, but don't make that a centerpiece. You know, it's interesting, I guess, in many ways, you can understand contemporary republicanism to be in a similar position to where the Reform Party or conservatism was after Mulroney. I mean, they had a mind, I mean, they were elected with a minority vote. It's just that the Americans have an odd system where a minority vote can still put you in power if it's, you know, concentrated in the right regions. Um, but I, I want to ask a question because uh, I think underlying the, the I, I've read these pieces about imagining the death of the GOP. And I think sometimes people imagine that if your political opponents have difficulty organizing and mounting an effective challenge, then it's just a clear runway for your policies. And I mean, I, I remember thinking, for example, after Bush, who I think probably did destroy the old Republican Party, um, there was there was some imagination that, you know, Americans, we'd get socialized medicine and free high, like all of our socialist dreams would come true. But that was hardly the case. Like it, it, it there's there's still friction, right? You're, there's still people there. And did that happen in Canada too, after the, the death of conservatism in Canada? 
Well, there was definitely a lot of friction. Um, mm. Ultimately, the, the party that took over the Liberal Party ended up uh, going centre-right rather than centre-left. Okay. And uh, the two Liberal Prime Ministers that came after Mulroney both governed in a very conservative fashion, uh, mm. bringing in a lot of policies that Mulroney actually campaigned on, yeah. um, which is the irony of it all. Uh, and, and what that ended up doing was it ended up reconfiguring what the centre was to be centre-right, uh, and it pushed the Conservatives further right. And, and I, it certainly created a, a decade, decade and a half of disarray. Uh, but again, when it, it was kind of uh, the phoenix rising out of the ashes for the Conservatives, it was about trying to figure out how to regain that centre. And right now, when I look at the Republicans, what, what has happened is they've lost their center. Mm. And you can see some uh, Republicans, uh, you know, the biggest sign to me is watching the number of Republicans who aren't willing to run again. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is, you know, very akin to what happened with Mulroney uh, when uh, Kim Campbell took over. A number of the Mulroney uh, MPs said, oh, no, we're not going to run. Mm. And that's the, that's the early signs that uh, the coalition uh, within the party is, is starting to evaporate. Uh, so, uh, you know, Trump m may lose the next election and, and it may usher in, uh, you know, a two term presidency for the Democrats. Right. Um, but it also is on the side of the Democrats to take advantage of that. The recipe in, in the Canadian case was a prime minister that um, kept the cards to the chest mm. uh, that. Uh, recognized where the, the public was and didn't usher in radically left of center policies, but rather stayed the center and, and played the center right. Uh, so, you know, the, one of the interesting things that'll come up with the next uh, U.S. election is how that will be navigated because there is a thirst for change. Mm -hmm. I think most Americans uh, recognize that uh, Trump is not the the person that they necessarily would like to go out to dinner with mm. uh, and, and are uh, raising concerns on that front. Um, but they're also expressing that they don't necessarily feel comfortable with radical changes. Mm. Uh, so yet at the same time, you have young people who are demanding uh, change as well. So it, it's a hard recipe to play. So I, I don't envy any of the Democrats, uh, whoever ends up becoming the, the Democratic candidate. This is a fascinating observation, though. So Following the destruction of conservatism, what the liberals tried to do was co-opt sort of the reconstitution of conservatism by moving themselves left. And you say Canadian politics as a whole took a slight tilt towards the right after a viable national right party was destroyed. Definitely. Um, wow. Canadian politics have never gone socially right. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the post-World War II period. Uh, but they certainly did go economically right of centre. So balanced budgets were key platforms up until the last Canadian election. Huh. And it was quite radical uh, of Justin Trudeau to say that he was going to run on a, on a deficit budget. And everybody huh. thought he was crazy that this was an impossible way to win. Mm. Um, but what ended up being the, the undoing of the Conservatives in the last election was uh, moving socially conservative. Uh, Canadians are quite comfortable with the economic conservatism, but uh, when it comes to xenophobia or anti-immigrant uh, sentiments, this is what has done in the Conservatives and, and is doing them in, in this current election that we're in right now. Uh, as you see, uh, a few splinter groups that have emerged, such as the People's Party, which is a, a splinter off of the Conservative Party uh, to be more right-wing than, than the Conservatives. Or nativist. But Canadian is, Canada is 
proportionally has a larger immigrant population, right? Compared to the Americans? 22% of Canadians are immigrants. Okay, uh, wow. and, and, you know, almost 75, 80% of us are, are the children of immigrants or are married to immigrants. So yeah. it, it's such a big part of Canadian identity. Uh, you know, unless you're indigenous, you're an immigrant in Canada. Right. And, and, and so there's no winning route to, to um, xenophobia and uh, nativism that excludes. Um, interestingly, when there is kind of uh, uh, an anti-immigrant sentiment, it looks much more like the Netherlands, uh, which is, uh, you know, we have to be concerned about immigrants because they might uh, challenge our multicultural values or, or liberal democratic values rather oh, than uh, having, you know, uh, values that are, so it's not about the immigrant themselves, it's a, a, issues around uh, kind of uh, the values. And you see that with Quebec and, and Bill 21, which is a debate uh, that, that's been triggered there in terms of not being able to wear religious symbols if right. you hold uh, a this, public position. So this, it's Islamophobia, basically, is the one xenophobia, sort of branded xenophobia that gets some traction. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's not clear-cut Islamophobia. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's a, this kind of notion of prizing multiculturalism. So okay. it, the end result is Islamophobia, mm -hmm. uh, but the construction of how you get there is, is a different construction. And, and, uh, different from the, the way it's constructed in America, which I guess conceptualizes it as a security risk or as a war or something like that. Exactly. So it's not about security risk and war. It's much more, as I was saying, like the Netherlands, uh, which I think is a very appropriate example. If you look at uh, Pim Fortune, uh, who interestingly was a sociologist, oh. <laughs> uh, when when he uh, campaigned in, in an anti-Islamic uh, platform, it was in defense of multiculturalism. Hmm. Very... Which is a complete, complete irony in, in an argumentation. Yeah, I guess so. If you assume you, I guess you assume that the left are the side that's welcoming to immigrants and is, you know, tolerant of other cultures or embraces diversity. But in and of itself, that embrace of diversity creates a form of xenophobia and I guess intolerance. It's I, well, I, I guess it's a testimony to how things are never easy. I mean, uh, or simple. No, and, and it also is a testament to how uh, for any party or any po political power, the way to maintain it is really to kind of navigate the center, not the extremes. Interesting. And, and I think that what's interesting about our current moment around the world uh, is that social media uh, allows the extremes to have a wider voice than actually are present in, in the population. Hmm. And, and something I'm wrestling with quite a bit these days is um, the role of supermajorities uh, huh. and, and how people aren't campaigning to the supermajority, but are campaigning to their bases. And then again, uh, how people react to the bases rather than the supermajority. So it's like, yeah, this is sort of like a new generic political strategy that's catching on type of thing. It is. It's, it seems that, you know, the last 10 years or so has been a kind of sabermetrics, uh, big data, micro-targeting approach. Of <laughs> if, you, if you can just hive off, ex you know, this little micro-target group, uh, bit by bit, you can get just enough votes so that you can get your power uh, and, and govern. Uh, but the end result is a, 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 a very wobbly democracy in democratic countries. And, uh, you know, and those who are on the left who kind of criticize this micro-targeting, uh, 
don't do themselves justice because we often end up amplifying the very thing and giving voice to the very thing uh, that we are worried about. So, you know, for example, with Trump, one of the best things that people on the left can do is just ignore him yeah. and, and talk past him. I often say to, to my students, uh, you know, remember that commercial with the Microsoft guy and the Apple guy and the Microsoft guy was the old lame guy and, and the Apple guy was the cool guy who got it. Yeah. Well, that's the dynamic to really engage uh, and, and, and appeal to that kind of supermajority in the center is, you know, don't get dragged into it because uh, the attention is what, what those fringe groups are looking for. Yeah, that reminds me of that uh, New York Times piece from a few years ago by uh, Luigi Zingales about how to deal with Berlusconi, Berlusconi uh, Silvio Berlusconi, Prime Minister of Italy, very much a Trump-like figure, a media billionaire who was outrageous and provocative. And I remember him arguing, the basic gist of it was, you have to treat him like a normal politician and argue on issues. Because so long as you uh, engage him for his manner or his, you know, his distastefulness, civility, things like that. It's a losing game. Is that something you agree with? I, I completely agree with it. And, and I would even say, don't even engage him. Yeah. Talk past him. And, 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 you know, when you have the moment and the year of mainstream media, don't waste that 30 seconds by talking about uh, him. Yeah. Take that 30 seconds as an opportunity to state the values that you're for. In, in a positive politic and, and, and eat up that time that he would get for his attention. So it, it's a very hard kind of dynamic. It's a very disciplined dynamic. But I think that people often forget in this age of social media that amplification is a power and, and that uh, these fringe groups are looking for amplification. So don't give it to them. We we got to go back to that uh, sabermetric politics on another episode. I'd love to talk about it. We'll, the two of us will bring someone in. But I want to just finish up with the uh, Canadian thing. So how did uh, Stephen Harper, well, we talked about that, right? How Stephen Harper brought the country together. Uh, concretely, well, what did he do? Well, I wouldn't actually say that Stephen Harper brought the country together. Well, it's sort of the, the conservatism. Country... <laughs> 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 yes, so Stephen Harper was able to, to bring the conservatives together. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, with respect to the country, um, you know, the jury was always out with him. He ended up getting uh, a minority government first, which is something you can have in Canada because we have a multi-party system. Mm -hmm. uh, and he created a, a, a weak coalition. Um, but, you know, he was basically govern on, governing on economic conservatism, uh, globalization, world trade. And, and Canadians were comfortable with this and they could see the, the, the results. He also appealed to immigrants and created a base within the immigrant community. Um, he then got a majority, and with his majority, he started governing like a conservative. He moved away from the center that he had uh, when he had his minority government. And at that point, uh, especially as some of the more social conservative values came in, Canadians didn't feel comfortable. And uh, very much, not so much Stephen Harper himself, but some of his ministers uh, in the face of the refugee crisis during the election made some uh, audacious remarks and, and very callous remarks mm -hmm. that really turned Canadians off of uh, the Conservative Party. And, and then the end result was a majority government to, for Justin Trudeau, uh, which wasn't so much an endorsement for Trudeau, but just very much like uh, Harper uh, was, okay, you know, we don't want the status quo. 
And, and so this election that we're currently in becomes really interesting to see what will end up happening here. Will the progressive uh, vote uh, splinter off? Mm -hmm. uh, because there were many progressive voters who voted for, for the Liberals uh, just not to have uh, Stephen Harper. And, and so this is the kind of thing that Americans can look forward to uh, post-Trump. Uh, and, and you can already begin to see this uh, debate happening with uh, this huge field of primary candidates on, on the Democratic side that as an outsider is often hard to keep track of. Yeah. Uh, but you can see a lot of variation there. You can see uh, Biden as being kind of the old established uh, center a candidate. You can see people like Kamala Harris being a, a kind of, uh, you know, a little bit different, but not too radical. You, you know, you have Warren also kind of in that middle, but a little bit more radical side. And then you have, you know, Bernie Sanders on the other extreme. And if the Democrats can sort of weave that all together, uh, they could have a viable alternative to, to Trump. If they can't, uh, they'll splinter and voter turnout might be low and, and, and Trump might get a second term. So it's never assured, but it's like you, you can't. So distaste for a politician is not a guarantee that that politician will be displaced. There's also, it, it's, it, it's never permanent. I'm gathering from your answer that like, even though the conservatism of Mulroney really repelled people in the way that maybe they will react with Trump, People, parties are smart and they adapt. They shed parts of their platform or their image and people forget or uh, tensions lower. And eventually people get tired of whoever's in power. And I guess it's sort of like under Obama, after Bush, there were two terms of Obama and Obama irritated people and Republicans found so well, it's an odd victory with the Republicans, but they found some way to rebrand and engage so it, would you say i guess it's sort of a there's sort of a fantasy involved do you agree that there's some type of fantasy involved with imagining someone like trump can permanently destroy republicanism or uh and, and do so in a way that like it's going to be some type of liberal utopia in america after he's gone I don't think it's a fantasy. I think it's a, but I, I think that it's a probability rather than a guarantee. Right. And I think that one of the things that uh, gives it a, a good probability is demographics. Mm. And if you look at the U.S. population that uh, is increasingly Latino, uh, that's increasingly diverse, uh, that has a lot of young people, and you look at how young people see the world. Uh, they tend to be pro-environment. They mm -hmm. tend to be more progressive in terms of the labor market and, and workers' rights. Um, it'll take a lot to swing them conservative. Right. Uh, so there's a window to try and appeal to that generation uh, that if the Democrats can do that, can usher in a good chunk of time that will force the Republicans to rebuild. Uh, you know, it could be a decade or so. Uh, completely quashing them, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but it can usher, usher in probably uh, a, a decade or, or more um, if the if the Democrats can reorient. And this is actually a really important thing to think about in terms of the reorientation of the Conservatives in Canada as well, which is as the Liberal Party uh, went centre-right rather than centre-left, uh, it created a, a generation of folks that got used to this level of centre, hmm. which was more right of centre than before. Oh, and. And, and so the long-term long impact has been that Canada has become more right of centre hmm. uh, on economic issues. 
uh, very few Canadians are against uh, international trade at this point. Right. Whereas during Mulroney's years, Canada was not for that. Oh, it was red hot controversial. Same with the GST. I remember people were so mad about the the sales tax. I think that's really what did him in, was the proposal. Well, then the reality of it, though, it didn't sink Chrétien. So. Well, it didn't sink Chrétien. And I think that what ended up happening is Chrétien had uh, a number of factors that went for him. Uh, you know, he, he was the every guy. And he would commonly say, oh, I'm just this guy from Shawinigan. Uh, but he also had uh, 30 years of political power and, and was, uh, for lack of a better term, the henchman for uh, Pierre Trudeau uh, from the 70s through the 80s, given a lot of difficult portfolios. And and what Kretschner uh, realized is that uh, the you know, staying in power is a balancing game uh, of kind of staying in that middle, reading how the wind's blowing, and go middle right when the wind's blowing middle right, go middle left when it's going middle left, and 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 having a kind of complex portfolio of, of, of policies in a, in a country like Canada, which is regional, and, and the U.S. is the same. It's a very regional country that you need to be able to kind of pull out in both directions. And, and I think this is the thing that's really been missing in the last 10 years, is people forgot that you have to have a broad-based coalition and uh, the last few elections in the US and Canada and Europe have been these attempts to get your core base plus 5% or your core base yeah. plus 10% and, 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 and kind of uh, see what happens. Uh, but, you know, it's not the first time in U.S. politics that uh, the country's divided. Uh, you know, it's, uh, American politics is a, a history of divided politics right from the inception of the right. country. And, and I often remind my Canadian colleagues that, you know, U.S. politics was branded by assassinations in the 1960s, uh, impeachment in, in the 1970s, impeachment, impeachment in, in the 1990s. It was never, ever a country that was yeah. filled full of centrist politics. Uh, there was always divisions, and everybody's <laughs> always true. questioning each other's patriotism uh, on the campaign trail. Yeah. Well, any, uh, this, uh, this was an amazing thing. Any last words or uh, final thoughts before we... Uh... We wrap it up well my, my final yeah the last things i would say to to folks uh, in the us uh, who are on the left is there's a huge opportunity ahead uh you can't count anything for certain um but the main thing to do is to really recognize that the way to go forward is not to um talk past people but recognize kind of where they're at and, and try and see how you can do, build those uh connections because uh, certainly uh, going to the extreme hasn't helped them uh, win the last election. Uh, and, and certainly the lesson you can take home from Canada is, is uh, all the parties that have existed afterwards have kind of played that center space. And, and the revival of the Conservatives here was being able to regain some kind of center coalition. And uh, just before we leave, uh, Howard, if... Uh... Howard is one of my favorite Canadian sociologists, a great political sociologist. Howard, if people are interested, where can they learn more about what you do? Uh, they can look at my website, which is howardramos.ca.com.org.everything, uh, <laughs> as well as perceptionsofchange.ca.org.everything. Uh, so either of those two websites. Wonderful. That was Howard Ramos of Dalhousie University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Howard Ramos of Dalhousie University. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex. 
on Twitter at Sochanex and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producers are Lisette Moreno, Jaylene Colon, and Fazia Muhammad. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>